He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We're pushing back against the narrative tonight. That's what we're doing. We're pushing back against the received wisdom that is completely and utterly false. The received wisdom that says Tom Mulcair is out as NDP leader because he was too centrist in the last election. Hello, welcome to the program. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. And if you're listening later, well, we're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, what have you. But let's talk about what happened in Redmonton on the weekend. The federal New Democrats met in the most left-wing city in Alberta and decided to do two things. They were going to adapt the Leap Manifesto, and they were going to turf Thomas Mulcair as leader. And if you want to actually have government, neither one of those makes sense. Before the vote, Mulcair, you know, he spoke to delegates. He spent the whole weekend shaking hands, kissing babies, hugging old ladies, everything he could do. He made his pitch to stay. Since the beginning, I've always said I don't take anything for granted. I've worked tirelessly since the election to listen to our members across the country and apply the lessons going forward. That's all I can do. And yet, they turfed him. They turfed him and decided that they want to go back to being a party that is a rump party. They want to go back to being a party that's of the principle. We're for the people. We're for the people and we're for the little guy. We're for the working guy. But we'll never, ever be elected. Now, I will say that it's true that Tom Mulcair moderated the NDP somewhat in the last election. But he didn't take them away from being a left-wing party. He didn't move them to the middle. He didn't turn them into the liberals. They were still left-wing, and if you read their policies, you knew that. But the perceived, sorry, the received wisdom, echoed by the media, echoed by so many in the the, the far left of the New Democrats, is that Tom Mulcair lost the last election because he wasn't left-wing enough. I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. Tom Mulcair and the NDP lost the last election. At one point in time, that was a given. Of course they lost the last election. Of course the NDP is not going to win. When was the last time you ever heard of the NDP winning government at the federal level? Oh, wait, they never have. Even in 2011, their big breakthrough year, they didn't win. But in 2011, their big breakthrough year, Tom Mulcair played an integral part. See, because Mulcair was recruited by Jack Layton nine years ago to become his Quebec lieutenant and to turn the NDP into a viable option in Quebec. They'd never elected an MP in Quebec. Never. They didn't have an operation in Quebec. Never. Mulcair turned it around and said, you know what? I can do this. Leighton had a part. Mulcair had a part. Mulcair built an operation that allowed them to compete. Now, a lot of the wins that they had in 2011 were complete flukes. 
But those flukes wouldn't have happened without Mulcair's effort. And what does he get for that? His party turfed him on the weekend. We will always be the party that dreams no small dreams. We'll always be that party, and you know what? I couldn't be prouder of each and every one of you and to count you as friends. Don't let this very divided vote divide us. Let's all work together now to choose the best person to take our project forward. Merci. Thank you. On continue. On continue. Except Mulcair will not on continue. He will not continue as leader. Because the NDP, at least some, decided that uh, we weren't left-wing enough. That's why we lost. What? On what planet does that make sense? Let me give you some actual facts of what happened in the last election. And it has nothing to do with the idea that the NDP was not left-wing enough. Not at all. This is what is being pushed by the media party. And it's balderdash. Strongest word I can use on the radio. Balderdash. Tom Mulcair took 19.7% of the popular vote in the 2015 federal election. When was the last NDP leader, other than 2011, where they got 30% in official opposition status, when was the last time that the NDP was able to get there? Well, it wasn't under Leighton in 2004, he got 15%. Wasn't under Leighton in 2006, he got 17%. Wasn't under Jack Leighton in 2008, he got 18%. And it definitely wasn't under... Alexandra McDonough or Audrey McLaughlin. McLaughlin actually got 6% of the vote back in 93. The last time an NDP leader did better than Mulcair, with the exception of 2011, was Ed Broadbent in 1988. And Ed Broadbent was what? Leader of the NDP from uh, around the time we crucified Christ until 1988. Okay, not that bad, because we did have Stephen Lewis. We'll get to the Lewis family in a few minutes. But Mulcair got turfed for having the third best election record of the NDP. The three right below him would all be Jack Layton, who got to stay around for four elections and would still be leader if he had not succumbed to cancer. Mulcair's getting a raw deal. I know some of you think I only pick on progressives. I only want to scream about progressives. Mulcair's getting a raw deal, and I'm the one that's defending him? Now, let me tell you why Mulcair actually lost the election. We'll get into this with Daryl Bricker from Ipsos Public Affairs in a few minutes. Daryl Bricker is one of the wisest pollsters I know. The fact is that Mulcair did not lose the election because he was too left-wing. He moderated some of the craziness in the party to try and attract swing liberal voters who just wanted to get rid of Stephen Harper. And you know what? It was working. When the election was called, the NDP was at 40%, according to forum research. 40%. The conservatives were at 28 and the liberals were at 25. That was August 2nd. And then there were a pile of Polls that came after that that showed the same thing. A strong NDP lead. Abbott has had them at 35. Uh, Enveronics had them at 34. Always well ahead of the other parties. And then 
September 17th was the last time the NDP was out in the lead. What happened then? Two days before, the Federal Court of Canada ruled that Zunera Ishak could wear the niqab in a citizenship ceremony. She could cover her face in a citizenship ceremony and she could go vote. Mulcair backed that idea. Mulcair backed it to the hilt. That's what did his campaign in because while most of the media were telling you that if you opposed women covering their faces while taking a citizenship oath, then you were a racist, you were a bigot, you were horrible, you shouldn't be listened to. But in Quebec, they actually had a debate on it. In English Canada, outside of this radio station and a few other outlets, including the rebel.media, the media told you that you were a bigot, even though the overwhelming majority of Canadians said, I don't like that. In Quebec, they had a big debate on this issue. This was front-page news. This dominated radio talk shows. This dominated television talk shows. Mulcair came down on the wrong side of this in Quebec, and his support plummeted. If you want to find all the details on this, you can go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. I've got a video up at the Rebel about this. You can watch it. You can see the facts. You can share the facts. But in two weeks, September 10th to September 25th, Mulcair and the NDP went from 45% support in Quebec down to 34%. In two weeks. And from there, everything else fell apart. All the people that said, I want anybody but Stephen Harper, began to look around for another savior because Mulcair's support was plummeting. The liberals did not lead in a single poll from the start of the election until after Mulcair came out on the NACAB. And apparently it didn't matter that Justin Trudeau held the exact same position. Mulcair took the brunt of it. The liberals were having a few good weeks. Mulcair came out in favor of the NACAB. Everything fell apart. If he had come out and said, I'm against people wearing the face veils citizenship ceremonies, well, then all the lefties in English Canada would have screamed at him and ran away from him. Well, some would have because, you know, our polls showed that even you Democrats and liberals opposed the idea. But the left-wing chattering classes would have left him. He would have kept his seats in Quebec. Things might have been very different today. But Mulcair took what he thought was a principled position. I may have disagreed with it, but the fact is Mulcair is getting a raw deal here. Yes, the NDP lost the election. They always lose the election. The fact that they were even contenders is in large part due to Thomas Mulcair and the discipline he instilled in the party. His ability to handle himself in question period like an adult. His ability to grasp issues. His ability to moderate some of the fringe elements of his own party. And for that, they turf him and they endorse the Leap Manifesto, which says, let's kill off large chunks of the Canadian economy. This is today's NDP, folks. The new socialism is like the old socialism and it doesn't work. We'll spend more tonight talking about this. We'll also check in with David Aiken, who has a great column out on what's going on with the budget numbers that you won't believe. We've also got Daryl Bricker from Ipsos Read coming up in a few minutes. I'm Brian Lilly. Don't go away. This is Beyond the News. News Talk 580 CFRA.
You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. All right, so how shocked are you? Honestly, how shocked are you that I'm the one defending angry Tom Mulcair? If you go if, if you go on YouTube and you search my name and Tom Mulcair's name together, you find a blowout between Mulcair and I from several years ago, and yet I'm still willing to defend the man because the truth says something different than the received wisdom that's out there. The truth says something completely different. And the fact of the matter is, it's the truth that should win out, not not received wisdom, not media narratives, not the bull crap put forward by the people trying to get us to adopt Cuban and Venezuelan-style socialism. Avi Lewis, we're going to play some Avi Lewis later. He was on with Don Martin earlier today. How many... How many dollars, thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars has Abby Lewis taken from the oil-rich kingdom of Qatar to turn around and bash Canadian oil? Hmm. Hmm. When he moved from CBC to Al Jazeera, he didn't have to change his politics. He was still allowed to be the freaking little communist he's always been. I'll, I'll invite Avi Lewis. You know what? I'll put a I'll put a call out to him tomorrow. We'll see. But I do believe the man is a little communist, very tall little communist, but still a little communist. Stories that you want to know about. One, we'll be talking with Ezra Levant about this in the next hour, and that is um, what's going on in Halifax. Did you hear about this story? Halifax Chronicle Herald put out a story quoting from parents and others about violence in the schools since a bunch of Syrian refugee children showed up. The newspaper ended up pulling the story after a wave of criticism, except the criticism didn't focus on whether the story was accurate or not. It focused on whether it was nice of the newspaper to put that out there. We'll talk with Ezra Levant about that later on. That's one of the stories that's burning up at the Rebel right now. Uh, along with uh, Black Lives Matter in Toronto. They write a violent racist tweet. They get a a meeting with the premier. You can find all of that at the Rebel. Right now, though, um, continuing with the the thought that it's not good to be a new Democrat right now, Cam Broughton, he was the leader of the NDP in Saskatchewan, and they'd hoped to take power back because the NDP ruled Saskatchewan for a long time. Remember, this is the province that gave us Tommy Douglas. Well, actually, that... you know, through Scottish immigrant Tommy Douglas upon the rest of the country. I've actually been to Tommy Douglas's birthplace, his hometown in Falkirk in Scotland. Uh, but Broughton is resigning as leader of Saskatchewan's New Democrats as he's stepping down after a crushing election result that even saw him lose his own seat. Turns out he couldn't get anyone else to give up their seat and let him keep his $95,000 a, uh, a year job. So he says... Uh, it's going to be up to party to members to decide who gets to have the job next. You know, everyone has a list of what they think is the best, uh, the best characteristics of a leader. I did my best. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of the work I've done. I'm saddened by this loss, and I wish I had been elected, and I wish I was making a very different announcement today in the park. But the fact of the matter is, uh, I didn't get enough votes to win my seat, and uh, that's a 
that's the harsh reality of politics at times. Now, staying with the crazy left, um, a prominent pastor in Toronto has pleaded not guilty to decades-old sex crimes charges. Now, this happened in Nova Scotia. We're talking about Brent Hawks, who has been the leader of the Metropolitan Church in Toronto. It is the big United Church that mainly services the gay and lesbian community. All I'm going to say about this, as you listen to Kim Vance, the national co- uh, co-chairwoman of the Brent Hawks uh, Support Fund, is that this is a very different narrative that you're getting from the media here and from this woman. Then if Brent, if Brent Hawks was a Roman Catholic priest, this story would not be written. So we don't feel there's any place for them uh, in the current legal system. It, it sends a chill of fear down the LGBTI community in Nova Scotia and across Canada to think that these charges could be dredged up from the past. They happen all the time, but just not to your poster boy. Finally, to Donald Trump. Uh, You know, I'm not a fan of Trump, but let me just say this. This is a guy who has bragged about how much he gives to charity, as we hear from uh, ABC's Kenneth Moten. Mm, Not so much. I'm really rich. Billionaire Donald Trump has said it often. Number one, I am a nice person. I give a lot of money away to charities and other things. But the Washington Post learned out of the $100 million Trump claimed he gave to charity in the past five years, not one donation was personal cash. Instead, many of the gifts were free rounds of golf at his courses and resorts. Trump's campaign told the newspaper the real estate mogul has given his own cash to charities but declined to provide documents. Kenneth Moten, ABC News, Washington. All right, we'll get into more on what's going on with Canadian politics. Daryl Bricker, the Dean of Canadian Polling. He's up next. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News, News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. You heard my rant at the beginning about Tom Mulcair, but what do I know? I've just been following politics my whole life and covering it full-time for the last 15-plus years. Daryl Bricker, though, has been involved in it as both an operative, as a staffer, and as a pollster for more than 20 years. I had the chance to talk with him from the bunker earlier today. When it comes to pollsters I trust, the list can be very short. None I trust more than Daryl Bricker because he's been doing this job since uh, Moses was in short pants. He joins me now from Calgary uh, where he swears he wasn't stalking uh, the NDP just north of him in uh, in Edmonton. Daryl, thanks for the time. My pleasure, Brian. Where, where do you stand on this idea that keeps being pushed by many in the NDP but also many in the media that the NDP lost the last election because... Tom Mulcair moved them too far to the center. Well, you know, it, it's it's one of those things. I think it's become a bit of a, a convenient trope uh, for uh, for people who are upset about the way that the campaign was won, uh, run the last time around. But the truth is, what really did Tom Mulcair in was his loss of support for the NDP in the province of Quebec, which was principally driven by being placed on the horns of the dilemma uh, that was the NICAB. And an issue that an awful lot of Canadians were opposed to. They they sided, the Canadians generally sided with Stephen Harper, even if elite opinion didn't, but it was only really an issue that was talked about widely and openly in Quebec. 
Well, and, and the, the problem was that it was almost like Brian Mulroney on National Unity back in the 80s, where, uh, you know, if you're damned, if you do, damned, if you don't. Uh, so if Thomas Mulcair would have come out and said, look, uh, I actually agree with the Quebec nationalists who are in my party who have on this issue of identity have, uh, you know, a, a view in which uh, women should not be allowed to wear any times at uh, citizenship ceremonies, or I have to side with my new friends in the progressive movement outside of the province of Quebec uh, who believe that uh, this is really up to a woman, uh, a woman uh, in, in her own ability to choose what should she be able to wear at a, at a citizenship ceremony. So he was stuck in between those two places. He decided to uh, side with his new friends outside the province of Quebec. And as a result, once he started to lose in Quebec, and it looked like he wasn't the alternative to beat Stephen Harper, didn't have the support to beat Stephen, Stephen Harper, you saw uh, the uh, the Liberal Party really start to take off. It, it wasn't anybody but Harper, anybody but the conservative movement, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot of mythology about what the campaign was about. You know, where people are you know putting a lot of emphasis on things like debates and other things. No, it really wasn't about that. What really happened was first part of the campaign was does the government deserve to be reelected? People decided that they didn't, and then after that, it was to search for who the great alternative was going to be. Uh, pretty neck and neck there between the Liberals and NDP for a while, but the NECOB issue really did uh, cause Thomas, uh, Thomas Mulcair a lot of trouble, and that's the reason he pretty much lost the campaign. The, um, the, I, I remember speaking to conservatives who were going door-to-door in ridings across the country and saying, you know what, people don't like our leader anymore. I mean, for the conservative side, that was part of it. I, I don't think Mulcair had that problem. I'm not sure Canadians were in love with him, but I don't think he had that problem. No, it wasn't really related to him personally. I mean, right through the campaign, he was a bit of a cipher. People didn't really have strong views about him personally, but the idea of him representing an alternative to the current government was quite credible at the start of the campaign. And then what happened was when it looked like he couldn't even win in the province where the NDP did so well the last time, and it looked like if he was the alternative that the public picked, he wouldn't be able to, uh, to uh, defeat the Conservatives. That's when you saw the Liberals really start to take off. So I think it's it's interesting that people go through these ex post facto analyses about, you know, it was about our agenda not being progressive enough or we didn't take a strong enough position on the deficit and, and, and other issues. It, re- it really wasn't about that. It was that he did not look like he could defeat the government. I, I was saying earlier that um, I, I don't remember the NDP ever being in contention. I mean, all this talk of we lost the election. Tom lost us the election. Uh, when was the last time that any of us credibly talked about the NDP being a contender to win an election? Yeah, well, the answer is outside of some provinces on the national stage, probably in the mid-1980s uh, under Ed Broadbent. Uh, um, you know, Jack Layton uh, certainly got a, uh, you know, a bit of wind in his sails back, in, uh, uh, back when he was running, but uh, save that one election, he really wasn't that competitive the entire time he was the leader of the NDP. So, you know, Mulcair was in a, in a pretty privileged position and got and was able to get the NDP back up to the level where they were seriously, seriously competing to be uh, the government of the country prior to the election campaign. So now we've got two different parties searching for a leader. Uh, I guess this gives Justin Trudeau and the Liberals um, a bit of a free pass, almost. Ron Ambrose is doing a, an admirable job for an interim leader in question period. We'll see what the NDP do, but it, 
you know, at the end of the day, neither one of those contenders is a government in waiting. So I guess they have a bit of a free pass for a while. They do for probably the next two years, because even if Ron Ambrose does do a good job and maybe Tom Mulcair does hang around and, and does a good job uh, um, in the competing uh, in question period uh, with the uh, with the liberals, the truth of the matter is neither one of them, uh, at least at this stage of the game, are potential contenders to replace the uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. So at this stage of the game, it's really just... Uh, you know, um, it's, it's almost like they're just markers in a race, right? They're, the, they're there for the other people to race against, but they're not really, you know, serious contenders in the in the uh, in the process of forming the next government. Where uh, where do you see the the political situation going in Canada over the next little while? Do we end up with what we're seeing in the United States, where outsiders on the left and the right end up riling people up? Or is there any comparison between what's happening in the U.S. And what we might see up here? No, I don't really think so. Other than you know, there's some things that sort of symbolically have a relationship to you know, you can interpret them through that prism. Uh, but I do think you know, this is something I've been talking about for a while. That the idea that you know, parties who run in the center are the ones that win. I think that that idea has pretty well been uh, um, uh, discredited. Uh, particularly over the course of the last election campaign. I think what's happening in Canadian politics is we're getting a more clearly defined left and we're getting a more clearly defined right. Uh, you could sort of walk through the uh, various aspects of what that means, but um, there's going to be one party at some point representing the left and there's going to be one party at some point representing the right, and I think we're just in a gradual process moving towards that right now. Uh, far, I think far too many people don't realize how far to the left Justin Trudeau and the liberals ran in the last election. And this is not the the centrist liberals of Cretchen and Paul, even Paul Martin days. No, these are the interventionist liberals of the 1970s. So, I mean, th- this is a you know campaign platform that could uh, very handily have been one uh, run on by uh, the, the prime minister's father. I mean, you know, the idea of big governments, big deficits, stimulating the economy, government uh, playing a role that uh, is central to our society, something that even, you know, uh, liberal governments since then have moved away from. These guys have moved right back into that kind of position. And I guess over the next couple of years, we'll see if that's right. I know that you guys over at Ipsos, and I'm speaking, of course, with Daryl uh, uh, Bricker, the, the president of Ipsos Global Public Affairs. Is that the right term? Sounds good enough. Okay. Uh, You're the mucky muck over at Ipsos. But, Daryl, I I know that you guys aren't out polling on a weekly basis on federal politics anymore. Or if you are, you're not putting it out there like some of the other guys. But there's really there's no really no point. Brian. I I mean, I watch all these polls coming on. It's like, save your money, guys. There's nothing going on. Yeah. So uh, that, that was going to be my question. I mean, there's there's very little to go on. But do the do the liberals take any any hits over the next little while in terms of things like it turns out Bill Morneau uh, has offshore tax haven companies. It turns out they you know fudge some of the numbers in their budgets. Does any of this play into into politics over the next while and support? And does it matter? Oh, it could potentially. I mean, but where you'll see the numbers start to change is not on party support, and at least not right away. Because there's no election to be had for the next couple, you know, three years at least, uh, four years almost, and 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 so people aren't in that mindset. So essentially, what it'll be is a valuation of the government on its own. So, for example, where you'll see the numbers change is on something like government approval. Uh, right now, the Liberals are running in the low 60s on government approval. If you start to see that come down, that will be the impact of what you just mentioned. 
All right, Daryl Bricker, we'll let you enjoy Calgary and uh, safe travels, my friend. My pleasure. Thanks, Brian. That was Daryl Bricker from Ipsos Global Public Affairs. If you want to share the, the facts that I gave you about Tom Mulcair and the real reasons he lost, go to my Facebook page. I implore you, go to my Facebook page and share that story. Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. When we come back, we get into the replay. Gary Dimmick dropping by from the Ottawa Citizen for a little bit of true crime. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, News Talk 580 CFRA. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. My favorite type of reporters are the type that actually get out and dig and walk the streets, hit their beats, and find out what's going on. Gary Dimmick is one of the rare breed that still exists. Joe Warmington's another at the Toronto Sun. But Gary Dimmick at the Ottawa Citizen was on with... Evan Solomon on Ottawa Now earlier today. It's time for a little bit of redux, time to bring you parts of that interview where Gary was on talking about how a man ended up in solitary confinement for a very long time, and you won't believe the story. 23, 20, 18 months in solitary confinement. Tell us the story. Mitchell Raymond, uh, he goes in as a 20-year-old man, He's just a young guy. He's uh, he's never been in there before. Uh, he was a crack dealer in Ottawa, and uh, he was charged with uh, murder and the killing of a, of a of a crown witness. He, he didn't do the, the shooting. He was the getaway. So he's charged with the stabbing death, first degree murder, and the stabbing death of Andre Boisclair. So pick up the story from there. So he he, he goes to Innis Road Jail, October 2013, after being charged serious charges. He's fighting with inmates. He's fighting with staff. There's nowhere to put him. They put him in segregation. Now, segregation and solitary confinement, the cells are the same, but the privileges are much different, Evan. So you've got a guy that would, in in his case, 23 hours a day, um, the odd family visit, a guy bringing him meals. There's no TV in there. There's no no radio. There's no Evan Sullivan show. There's, There's nothing. There's no social interaction. And it was in that lonely cell on Innis Road that uh, he started hallucinating. This is a guy, Evan, and for your listeners, this is a guy who, who knew the street. He was a crack dealer. He, he ran with that crowd. He knew what was what in terms of the street world. And, um, you know, he was a guy with a clear mind that used to tell his associates that he, he had no time for a relationship with a woman because he was too busy selling drugs. And that was his business. So then he gets in, he gets wrapped up in the stabbing death of Andre Beauclair, goes to the jail, also then gets charges with drug charges. And he, a year ago, this month, April last year, he still had the wherewithal, the mind about him, Evan, to give instruction to his lawyer saying, yeah, you know what, I'm going to plead guilty on, on these charges. They uh, dropped two of the charges. And one of the charges he went down on was uh, drug trafficking charges, and he went down for 12 months. And he did that time. But that time that he did, in that time that he did, awaiting trial for the more serious charge of murder, he may have lost his mind on Ennis Road. I've never heard of this before, nor has his lawyer, nor has any lawyer down at the courthouse or anybody in my world. Talk about this. First of all, let's talk about the standards. 
When people talk about solitary confinement, why is it used, Gary? And I'm speaking to Gary Dimmick of the Ottawa Citizen who broke the story. And what are the parameters around which it can be used? In in this case, all I know in this particular case, it was punitive. He was in there because he was in there for fighting. He couldn't get along. You know, he couldn't play well. He was fighting with the inmates. He was fighting with staff. Where do you put him? You put him in there. You know, the the, the sad, twisted thing about the segregation uh, unit at uh, the Innis Road Jail is that uh, I think it's something like half of them are, are mentally ill in segregation. A quarter of the population is in segregation. So of that, you know, you've got half of them are, you know, suffering from some sort of mental illness. And in my opinion, when you put somebody in a solitary confinement or a seg unit, a cell alone, uh, somebody who's, who's, who's may have in fact been in there because of mental illness, does it not just exasperate the symptoms that led them to get in jail in the first place? And and the other thing too, uh, as you've said over and over again on your show, and, and I thank you for it, and so do the guys in jail, is that, you know, I think what is it, Evan? Sixty percent of the population are untried. They're in remand. They haven't That's even right. been to court yet. That's right. It's amazing. It used to be a third. Now it's two thirds uh, of the inmates there on remand. If you talk to the jail about that, just I just want people to to realize, you know, solitary confinement. We call it here in Canada segregation, right? The U.N. has said it. all countries should prohibit this for young people and people with mental illnesses, and it should never be done for more than 15 days, okay? Yep. So the auto, uh, and, then, and then we have a correctional investigator who have done studies on this, that why this has been normalized. Now, again, for folks listening, Gary, it's a lot of people that say, look, these guys are charged with first-degree murder or they're drug dealers. We don't care about these folks. You know that, right? You know, there's a lot of people that say, you know, you, you, you do the crime, do the time, tough luck, tough love, I get. but Maybe do the time after you're actually found guilty. Well, first of all, you got to be found guilty. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it doesn't matter what side of you, if you're tough on crime or you're not, this is not the way the system is supposed to work. You can't keep people in solitary confinement for 18 months, full stop, because they should be in some kind of mental health ward. Solitary confinement is not a way to deal with someone who clearly has psychiatric illnesses. And, and, and so this is, this is not about whether you're tough on crime or, or soft. I don't know. The, all whatever those arguments are. This is just fundamental rights. You, you, wouldn't treat, you wouldn't treat the neighbor's dog this way. So what's the upshot? What happened to this guy? Well, he was transferred January, I think it was the 15th, um, to the Royal Ottawa, where he, he, you know, he went under an assessment. He was found unfit to stand trial, so he's going to stay there until he's rendered, and if he's ever rendered to to stand trial for the uh, the stabbing death of Andre Beauclair. Now, he's under the jurisdiction of the ORB. Uh, that's the Ontario Review Board. So what happens there is, you know, once a year they get together and they decide the the man's fate. I know guys that have been there you know, 10 years before they're released, you know, in a lot of cases down at the courthouse uh, where someone is found guilty of manslaughter. And uh, even though their defense lawyer wanted, you know, not criminally responsible, they would go to a hospital setting and that's where he is. So in the long run, uh, if there's any good news, Mitchia Raymond is actually getting the help that he needs right now. He's in, he's in treatment day to day before he was alone all day 
right now, his observation right now in his room would be two to one. So there would be two staff members with him in the room. That's social. Now, when he's being transferred, Evan, from his secured room to another room or to take a phone call, that's three to one observation on him. I've never heard of that before. So he's got people around him and, and he's getting the treatment that he that he that he deserves like any other human being, no matter charge, no matter, you know, he's an alleged criminal and a drug dealer, but he's finally getting the help that he needs right now. That's Let, what it appears like. Gary Dimmick, Ottawa says, I'm going to read a paragraph from your story out right now. Ottawa's jailhouse authority, we know now, by the way, that the superintendent has been fired, and so they've got an interim superintendent. Ontario's jailhouse authority declined to say why Raymond was kept in solitary confinement for so long. They wouldn't say whether Minister Nackby knew about the length of time he'd spent in isolation. Um, The ministry has declined to release statistics on the length of time inmates spend in isolation. Gary, this is like a black hole. We just don't even know what the heck's going on inside there. No, no. Well, I know who does, and that would be, I would hope that the the minister would know and the the government people around him, uh, hopefully getting uh, the best advice that he can get, because now is the time to get really good advice about that place. Uh, it's, It's one of the territories up north that actually posts the length of time spent in solitary confinement, as does Quebec. Right. But Ontario, I've asked them, uh, the Globe Mail's asked them, they, they've they never specified. Um, they'll give you on any given day, this is X amount of inmates in solitary confinement, but they have yet to release the length of period of time that the inmates spent in solitary confinement. That's a, that's a key thing that the public should know. And, you know, you got to wonder why we don't know that. All right, uh, Gary Dimmick, one of the great shoe leather reporters, on with Evan Solomon earlier today. When we come back, David Aiken from the Ottawa Sun dropping by to talk about what's going on with the federal budget and why he says it should be kicked to the curb. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Do you believe in fairy tales? Apparently Bill Morneau does. Our finance minister uh, put up some numbers that are questionable in his budget. In his latest column in the Ottawa Sun, David Aiken, the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for the Sun Media Paper, says MPs should give thumbs down to Morno's fantasy numbers. David, uh, thanks for joining me. Is he off-writing these numbers in uh, in Hogsworth's Academy? What's going on? Well, there's a few things here. First of all, uh, let's do the numbers bit. Um, This is not me making this up. This is the Parliamentary Budget Officer. Uh, the economists at Scotiabank, and generally any Bay Street economists I talk to during the budget lockup. Let's start with the Parliamentary Budget Officer, the PBO. Um, you'll remember that the PBO did not like the Harper government very, not, very much, found it very difficult to get financial information from the Harper government. In fact, it was so difficult at one point, the PBO sued the Harper government to get information. Okay, so that's where we start. Now, okay, the PBO yeah. Is, has just looked at the first liberal budget and says the liberals, it's more difficult to figure out what they're <laughs> doing. Okay, remember that, that more difficult compared to the guys we had to sue 
That's the current quote. Uh, we're into transparency, love, sunshine, unicorns, etc. Well, uh, I tweeted out today as uh, Morno was talking about how uh, transparent they were. I tweeted out my favorite line from Princess Bride. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly it. Uh, My name is Matiko, or whatever it was. I love that guy. Um, So so that's the first thing. The PBO says, hey, it's it's just, you know, uh, and also on some of the forecasts, the PBO used the word, quote, excessive. And here's the forecast. We've been told. We're going to be running up deficits of $39 billion or something this year, $30-something billion. We're going to be racking up all these deficits. In fact, these forecasts may be for the birds that Morneau has way overestimated how bad things are going to be. And in this case, he's really put politics all the way back into budget, the budget making. Back in 1994, 94, that would be Paul Martin said, you know, we can't do this thing where we end up with, oh, look, there's a big surplus every year. That's clearly politics. It means we're being taxed too much if we keep ending up with these super-duper surpluses. So Paul Martin's innovation was, for forecasts, we're going to go to Bay Street, we're going to go to some academics, we'll go to think tanks, and we'll use what's called the consensus forecast from these independent, outside-of-government economists. Mm -hmm. And every finance minister since has done that, to say, how are we going to be doing down the road, except for Bill Morneau. He's a rookie MP, he's a rookie finance minister, and he knows better than all the Bay Street economists, all the think tanks, all the university economists, and he just pulled numbers out of, out of thin well, air he, about how we're going to do next year, the year after that, and so on. He and, is a Bay Street mogul who knows how to set up tax havens. Uh, we'll get into that in the next segment. I've got some audio on that. But, yeah. I mean, he is a bigwig, so, so he can make up his numbers. He, so he's making up all these forecasts. How wrong have the forecasters, have the, have the forecasters ever been as wrong for multiple years in a row as Morneau thinks they'll be? Never, ever. Not once. There is not a single moment in time where the consensus forecast was as wrong as Morneau says it. So there he's making up numbers there. And then I did some number crunching of my own. Morneau wants you to believe, for example, that the richest 10%, the richest 1% are getting rich and the rest of us are doing terribly. And he's measuring, though, from 1972. From 1972, he thinks we've got to fix problems going back to 72. We've had multiple governments, all sorts of recessions, you name it. He's going back to 72 and claiming that since then, the richest have gotten rich. You know, when I was one, I did feel a bit richer than I am now. Yes. So I said, why don't we just use something a little more normal? How have we been doing recently? Let's look at the Harper years or go back to 2000. And you know what? The the richest people in the country, the top 0.1%, are worse off. They're worth less now after a decade of Harper. The rest of us, we're doing fine. So in other words, again, here's a little bit of propaganda from our finance minister to try and make a point. doesn't exist. The evidence is not there. And he's racking up deficits, which everybody says those are baloney deficits. They'll never happen. And the parliamentary budget officer says, gee, Willikers, your numbers are more difficult to get at than the last guy. So we have a finance minister who basically is making it up, and now even worse, He's not, he can't be counted on to keep his word. He said he was going to uh, limit deficits to $10 billion. He broke his promise there. The debt-to-GDP ratio was going to come down every year in his mandate. It's going up this year. He broke his promise there. He said he balanced the budget by the end of his mandate in 2019-20. He's not going to do that. He's broken his promise there. And to the hundreds of thousands, millions of small business owners in the country who were promised by all three parties that the small business tax rate was going to be lowered, including the liberals promised that, he broke his promise to those small business people and refused to lower their tax rate. You can't take his word because he breaks it four times in the space of six months, 
well, making up numbers. I, I don't know if you can say he breaks promises, David. I mean, I did see over at an organization that I like to refer to as the state broadcaster that um, they had promises kept, promises altered for a little reality check on the government a while ago. So maybe he's just altered the promises. Yeah, altered is what you call a broken promise by you and me and anybody else. I'm sorry, Brian. You know, we we, we, we do plain speaking here on the radio. Uh, I know. I'm just having fun with you. So, um, so yeah. So, uh, you know, this is, again, it's a rookie finance minister. It's his first months on the job. Um, he's a G20 finance minister. And, uh, wow, you want to go running around the world, think people are going to believe your numbers and believe you're going to do what you say you're going to do? I'm not so sure. I, Justin Trudeau had a lot of people that he could have turned to. Ralph Goodale had been finance minister yes. under Paul Martin, and until the 2015... John McCallum, his cabinet, uh, former dean of economics. But, at, uh, you, but you, you know. when we were both at Sun News, you used to say, Ralph Goodale was the last finance minister to actually lower spending. Well, he was until Joe Oliver came along and dropped it by $3 billion. But, I mean, so Goodale had experience. McCallum had real experience. And Goodale was the last guy to give us an income tax cut until we got that kind of one with Morneau, right? We got that whatever. But Goodale was the last one with a broad-based income so, cut, too. Why, I mean, why did he turn to Bill Morneau? Well, I, I guess because of his Bay Street experience, et cetera. I, you know, I, I, who knows? Here's the other thing, too, Brian, is the budget is three weeks old today. It was, it was released three weeks ago today. But they're, they're debating it all week. There are appearances at committees by yep. ministers in charge of all the departments all week. But the prime minister has yet to take a question from an MP on his budget. He's not been in the House because of the parliamentary calendar. The parliament was shut down the last couple of weeks, people back in the ridings. We had that sad situation where the night the budget was tabled, Jim Hillier, the conservative MP, died in his office. So the next day they sort of said, we're not going to do our regular QP thing. That's fine. It's perfectly mm-hmm. Uh, appropriate to do that, and then they were gone for two weeks. So we've been th- we're going to be three weeks in a day. Trudeau is going to be in the house in question period tomorrow for the first time since that budget, and it's the first time that parliamentarians will get a chance to grill the PM on his budget. I watched QP today. Morneau was grilled. All well, actually, they debated all day on the budget, but Morneau was there for QP, grilled on his on, on breaking these promises, and, and really all he had to say was, "Well, we'll make the economy better for everybody, and you're going to be really happy." somewhere down in his magical future. I, I, I'll leave this as the last question for you. I don't know if you've spotted the story. Uh, I talked about it on the radio last week. Journal de Montréal last week had a story that Bill Morneau, despite the liberal rhetoric on shutting down tax havens like Panama, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Morneau and his company, Morneau Chappelle, have subsidiaries, wholly owned subsidiaries in Delaware and Bahamas. And then today the liberals were out talking about how they've got to stop these you know, offshore tax havens. And I said, well, have you, have you spoken to, to Bill Morneau? Well, yeah, I'll play that is. audio later, but uh, yeah. does Morneau have something to answer for there? Well, uh, you know, right now it's, uh, you know, Jody Wilson-Raybould, the justice minister, was on a bit of a hot seat on the ethics issue today. She's the justice minister who was fundraising at a bunch of Bay Street lawyers whose husband is a lobbyist registered to run the government. She uh, has some issues there, and the, the, the opposition was going after her today. Maybe tomorrow it'll be Morneau on tax havens and things like that. But on the other hand, you could say maybe Bill Morneau is an asset here. He can have a little <laughs> powwow with his Canada Revenue Agency minister, and they can figure out what to do because he knows how to set them up. Maybe he can figure out how to find them. This is true. All right, David Aiken is Parliamentary Bureau Chief for Sound Media. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the rest of the night, David. Thanks, Brian. Cheers.
I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Uh, check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Share the story about Mulcair and all of that. We'll be back with more, including those comments I mentioned about the tax havens, the comments David mentioned about the whole issue of the justice minister. I'm Brian Lilly, News Talk 580 CFR. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. So you heard me mention at the end of the conversation with David Aiken there, David Aiken, Parliamentary uh, Bureau Chief for Sun Media. Check out his columns. This is a man that you want to follow. If you want the straight goods on, on what's happening, other than from myself, but I mentioned to David at the end there about Bill Morneau, and he's got this problem. And we've discussed it here. You're not hearing it. Again, I, I don't know why. Maybe most of the media are just unrepentant leftists. But we've got a finance minister in a government that is determined to crack down on, we're going to crack down on tax cheats. Panama Papers bad. And yet, Okay, there's Bill Morneau, his company, Morneau Chappelle. They have, um, oh, what do you call them? They're companies that your company owns completely. Oh, wholly owned subsidiaries, yeah. So they've got wholly owned subsidiaries in Delaware, which is a tax haven, and in Bahamas, which is a tax haven. It's all completely legal, but... Today, the liberals are out talking about how they want to go after people in Isle of Man and they want to go after people in Panama and this is bad and people have to pay their fair share. So, me being me and acting like, well, sometimes I think politicians view me as a fart in an elevator. You know, I'm just not welcome. So, I'm there with the finance minister who doesn't speak any English, so Lubitelier is her name. We'll skip the rest of it. Uh, the man there to speak English for is another liberal MP from Quebec, uh, Francois-Philippe uh, Champagne. And I asked him, I said, well, you want to crack down on this? Have, have you talked to, to one of your own guys? So I put the question to them, and the answer was, uh, well, judge for yourself. You're talking about multinational corporations, tax havens, tax shelters, tax schemes. Have you spoken to your colleague, the finance minister, Bill Morneau, whose company, Morneau-Chapelle, has Morneau-Chapelle, Delaware, Morneau-Chapelle, Bahamas? These two jurisdictions are well known as tax havens. So have you spoken to him about this? Well, um, you know, we're not, this morning is not about targeting legitimate business interests that Canadian companies can have to sell services or export goods in some jurisdictions. What we're talking here uh, this hold morning on, is hold about on. We going, stop. making... I told Stephen I was going to play the whole thing, but I got to stop. It's a legitimate business when it's Bill Morneau. But if it's somebody else, well, you know, we, we got to audit you. Sorry, I had to vent. I promise. That'll be the only vent. Roll the rest of Mr. Champagne defending his colleague. And making sure as well that we target those who promote these schemes, those who create them. 
You've seen in the announcement we're going to put significant resources to go after them. But let's be clear, we're not targeting here people who are doing legitimate business around the world. We want Canadian firms to export goods and services. What we're targeting here is people who are not paying their fair share of taxes. Not only we're doing things domestically, but we want to cooperate with our partners. That's why we're going to Paris and Beijing to make sure that the as the Prime Minister said, we need to make financial transactions, international financial transactions, more transparent. But we're not talking about targeting legitimate business interests in jurisdictions. Delaware is known as a place that you pretty much only set up if, uh, and if you want to avoid paying taxes, though. So, I mean, doesn't that raise some cause for concern for you? Well, I mean, what, what I just said is that you have a number of Canadian companies and individuals which are doing legitimate business interests, selling services and goods in a number of jurisdictions. This is not what this announcement is about this morning. This is about going to after people who are not paying their fair share of taxes in Canada and making sure that we give to the agency an historical investment in, in making sure they have the tools, they have the infrastructure, that they have the people to go after these people. But this is not going after legitimate business interests around the world. And they'll decide if you're doing legitimate business after they audit you. Isn't that great? They're going to increase audits on high net worth individuals. So if you're wealthy, you're going to have a 500. They're going to increase audits on wealthy Canadians by 500 percent. 500 percent. And they're going to hire 100 additional auditors to go after what they call high risk companies, which in apparently does not include a company that may or may not be named Morneau Chappelle. But if your company's not named Morneau Chappelle and you have a wholly owned subsidiary in Delaware or Bahamas, be careful. As I said to you last week, and we'll bring out more on these numbers later in the week, people earning more than $100,000 in this country pay more than 50% of the taxes. The top, the wealthiest Canadians pay more... Uh, Less The less than 1% pay more than 20% of all income taxes. Finally, I want to go get to Jody Wilson-Raybould, our justice minister, our esteemed justice minister. We talked about her last week. She faced questions in question period today, repeatedly faced questions. And, and then it got to the point where Jacques Gourde, Quebec MP for the Conservatives, and the NDP were asking as well, kudos to them. Jacques Gourde said to her, why won't you just admit you're doing this for the... As a justice minister, because she kept saying she was there as the MP for Vancouver Granville. You won't believe it. She plays the race card and plays the, well, I'm a woman. You're picking on me because I'm an aboriginal woman. Roll tape. Mr. Speaker, last week, the Minister of Justice said that she went to Toronto for a fundraising activity only as the member of Vancouver Granville. So she wants to make us believe that people that she met with at that cocktail party in Toronto wanted to hear about issues relating to her Vancouver riding. Let's not be naive. If I go to Toronto, nobody wants to talk to me about issues relating to my riding of Lévis Lobinière. Can the minister stop taking us for fools and tell us that she was there as the Minister of Justice? Honourable Minister of Justice. Uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, I did attend a fundraising event. Uh, in advance, I cleared it with a conflict of interest commissioner, complied with all federal rules with respect to fundraising, and the purpose or the discussion, the primary discussion that occurred at that event was about Canada, it was about how far we've come as a country wherein we div uh, embrace diversity, ensure that all voices are heard, and 
and recognize that in a country such as Canada, the Justice Minister can be an Aboriginal person and also be a woman. That's what this country is about. Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you. No one, Miss Wilson-Raybould, has said that you do not deserve to be Justice Minister. No one has questioned your fundraising because you are an Aboriginal or because you are a woman. They have questioned your judgment on going to a fundraiser organized by lawyers in the downtown Toronto offices of a swanky law firm, but no one has made it an issue about race until you did. And when you do that, do you know what you do? You engage in the bigotry, the soft bigotry of low expectations. You engage in the bigotry of low expectations by saying, well, they're picking on me because I'm a woman. No. No, they're picking on you because they think that you should do better. They're picking on you because they think that you know better. They're they're picking on you because you can do better. Smarten up. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. News Talk 580 CFRA. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Time to hear from one of the people behind the Leap Manifesto. Avi Lewis was on with Don Martin on CTV's Power Play earlier today. Uh, You're going to hear me interrupt him now and again when I need to vent my spleen because that's just the way it is. That's the way it is. I do want to to point a few things out, though. Avi Lewis is a man who says, oh, he's not proposing anything radical. This is a man that thinks Hugo Chavez in Venezuela didn't go far enough. Chavez and his socialist policies saw Venezuela run out of toilet paper. How would you feel if, due to government policy, we ran out of toilet paper? Avi Lewis is a man that left his cushy gig at the state broadcaster here in Canada to work for Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera owned by the House of Thani, the ruling family of Qatar, an oil-rich kingdom. So he's not against money from oil. He's just against Canadian oil, as described in his Leap Manifesto. Here's Avi Lewis speaking with Don Martin earlier today. All right, Abby, Rachel Notley says the debate is ill-informed, thoughtless, naive, and tone-deaf. She won't support it. Alberta Labour is calling you a downtown Toronto political dilettante who is tracking garbage across their front lawn. That sounds about right. That resentment? No, keep playing. I'm uh, just absolutely yelling. Absolutely not. Uh, I talked to Gil McGowan, the head of the Alberta Federation of Labour, uh, shortly after those comments, and um, we agreed that more communication might be, might be better. Um, you know, this is a very visceral subject, but l- like, let's just, can we zoom out for a second, because this is a, a thoughtful political show, and do a little like political reality check on this. So the right-wing pundits are doing their happy dance on Twitter, <laughs> gleefully seeing an opportunity to spear the NDP in a moment of, 
a vulnerability. And uh, they're not the only ones who have an interest in exploiting these divisions. I'm not diminishing them. They are, they are real. It's a tough debate that's going on now. But there's lots of other interests at play. For instance, Jerry Butts, uh, the principal secretary to the Prime Minister of Canada, was trolling my wife, Naomi Klein, on Twitter last night, which if the Prime Minister or anyone else in that office is watching, maybe someone should just suggest that that's conduct unbecoming one of the most powerful people in the country. So the issue of pipelines is a serious and complex one. And there are regional interests. I mean, Alberta... Uh, has a problem with the LEAP manifesto right now. Um, but the problem is really a national one of competing regional interests, of competing regional economies. And we need to sort this out in a much more uh, thoughtful, calm, grown-up way. And this is a moment of heat that is going to pass. And then we're going to start talking about what we do, because the question of energy uh, policy in Canada is a big one. And all the big players are sitting on the fence. Uh, but we're going to have to sort this out as a country. It's not just an internal NDP division. Well, I understand that, but certainly a policy document, if it's an embraced as such, that vows to end resource extraction and stop pipeline construction. Okay, well, Don, 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 the resolution that was passed at the NDP convention just committed the party to debate the document. It didn't commit it to adopting any of its measures wholesale. It just opened a debate. And this is a debate coming from Canadians who are really scared and concerned about climate change and who recognize, frankly, as one of the people, many people behind the document, I have immense compassion for what Albertans are going through. I have lots of friends there. I know that people are walking away from trailer homes that cost them half a million dollars in the boom and leaving the keys in the door because they can't pay the mortgage. Yeah, but we- you're not, Avi, because you take money or took money from Qatar. You took money from the oil-rich kingdom. Sorry, I have to interrupt this interview to vent my spleen. Avi Lewis, communist pusher, on with Don Martin earlier today talking about how he feels for the oil workers. Sure, because there were oil workers in Qatar spilling out Middle Eastern oil to make your cushy tushy in your job as an Al Jazeera journalist where you didn't have to change your politics. You could still stay anti-Western, anti-capitalist, just like you were at CBC. By the way... A little bit of information on Qatar. According to Reporters Without Borders, they rank 115th in the world for press freedom. 115th. But they will pay Avi Lewis to trash Canadian oil. Then there's the whole issue of their human rights record. This is the country that Avi Lewis worked for for long enough anyway. The authority, this is from Amnesty International, their 2015-2016 report. Authorities arbitrarily restricted the rights to freedom of expression, association, and peaceful assembly. A prisoner of conscience was serving a lengthy sentence for writing and reciting poems. Migrant workers, including domestic workers and those employed in high-profile construction projects, continued to face exploitation and abuse. Discrimination against women remained entrenched in both law and practice. The death penalty remained in force, but no executions were reported. Eh, Sounds like great guys to work for, Avi. Go. And we've been in Alberta and we've been listening and the pain there is real. But there are also First Nations in Alberta who are taking a much harder stance against fossil fuel development than the LEAP Manifesto does. And they're part of this conversation too. And there are real interests to be reconciled. Look, the pipeline issue has an economic debates about whether Alberta can get a better price with an east-west pipeline. The U.S. has lifted the ban on oil uh, exports. So that price argument may, may be changing. There are environmental debates about how we meet our commitments on climate and still not throw tens of thousands of people out of work, which nobody wants to do. And then there's political arguments where people cast each other in these caricatures as well, hold on I'm pretty willing, sure the oil rich uh, kingdom uh, of Qatar wants to put thousands of Canadian oil workers out of jobs 
it helps them sell their products. But you knew that, Abby. You've known that all along. It would also help your buddies in Venezuela because you love the Venezuelan. You love the South American strong, strong man. You love the South American socialism. It would help them too, wouldn't it? Well, I know it's. I know you're calling an ugly conversation, Abby. But certainly, there's a difficult way to correlate the objectives of the Lee Manifesto and Alberta's economy as it sits now. How do you bridge that gap? Well, so. First of all, that's why the NDP is having a debate, and the Leap Manifesto is a nonpartisan initiative which is engaging with all political parties that will talk to us um, in, in, in an attempt to address the concerns of Canadians around the economic crisis and the climate crisis. And what the Leap Manifesto actually proposes when people read it uh, uh, clearly is an immense job creation plan where we respond to the climate crisis with a torrent of new jobs in renewable energy and not just in retrofits and conservation and turbo wind turbines and solar that produce six to eight times more jobs than fossil fuel uh, uh, investments, but also in the existing caregiving economy, the teachers and the, and, and the doctors and the nurses. Let's and the have everybody workers. work for the government. Yay! Everyone's a civil servant. Yay! Everything is awesome. Did you watch the Lego movie, Avi? I did. It was fantastic. Craigle, it's wonderful. Look. The fact of the matter is, Ivy Lewis is an opponent of capitalism. He hates capitalism. He wants socialism, if not outright communism, but he at least wants socialism. He's more radical than his father was, and his father was radical enough. This is not who the NDP should be listening to. The NDP did not win power back then. They came close under Tom Mulcair. They came as close as they ever have under Tom Mulcair, and all Tom Mulcair did was moderate them slightly. But Avi Lewis thinks he's the one that should be listened to. And apparently the party does as well because they turfed Mulcair and they embraced his leap manifesto. Get rid of capitalism. Bring in community ownership of resources. Let the blood of the workers oil the machinery of capitalism, I suppose. Right? Hmm? Hmm? The new NDP. Welcome to obscurity. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. News Talk Radio 580 CFRA. The News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. So, you want to get a hold of me before we start taking calls at the top of the hour, you know how to do it. It's beyondthenews at CFRA.com, beyondthenews at CFRA.com. Or you can uh, you can tweet at me, twitter.com slash Brian Lilly, or the Facebook Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly as well. Have your say there. Join the conversation with thousands of other great Canadians, and you'll want to comment on this one. Story that we're following at the Rebel.media broke on the weekend. The Halifax Chronicle Herald, which is in the middle of a strike, so they're being backfilled by freelancers and management and all kinds of people. They had a story about fights breaking out in the schoolyard at a particular school where a large number of refugees have gone. And it claimed that there were things like uh, a child being choked with a chain, um, one, uh, one of the refugee students saying Muslims rule the world. 
But they had people on the record saying who it was. Some of them were anonymous, though. The resulting outrage ended up with the paper taking the story down. People denounced it. They didn't say whether it was false or right. They just said, you shouldn't be publishing this. Earlier today, down at the bunker, I had a chance to speak with Ezra Levant. He's the rebel commander, the guy that started the whole thing, about this issue and the fact that rebels now following it. We've got people down there, and we're trying to get to the bottom of what is a very murky story. Ezra, what's the most shocking thing for you about this story, the fact that it appeared at all or the fact that it was pulled down or the fact that most in the media don't even talk about whether it is true or accurate, but just that it's bad that it was printed? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's not shocking to me that there are cases of Muslim refugee kids fighting with Canadian kids. I mean, listen, kids fight anyways. And if there's deep divisions by ethnicity and language, remember a lot of these Syrian kids don't speak a word of English. I'm not shocked the kids fight. Um, and I'm not shocked that the Syrian kids fight a little more viciously than, uh, you know, uh, old stock uh, Haligonians. That's not shocking. I was a little surprised that the story itself made ink in the Halifax Chronicle Herald, because this is the kind of story the mainstream media hates. I wasn't that surprised when the story was taken down with all sorts of, oh, sorry, we should never talk about this. I'll tell you what's the most surprising to me is the brazen manner in which so many official journalists, mainstream media uh, types, have just pounded on the Halifax Chronicle Herald for daring to report it. None of them were saying this is false, we, or we have facts to prove it's false, or we've done real reporting to prove it's false. They're just saying, how dare you even publish this, the rage with which the media party is excoriating the Halifax Chronicle Herald for stepping out of line. That's the big surprise to me. They're just shameless. There's an awful lot of people saying uh, they shouldn't be publishing this story with anonymous sources. And yet, how many media outlets use anonymous sources on a daily basis for political stories, for whistleblower stories, for healthcare stories, it happens on a regular basis. Well, and, you know, they prove why these parents and grandparents, apparently, apparently four, according to the Halifax Chronicle Herald itself, four different sources here. Now, I can't vouch for these sources. I don't know who they are. I don't know if they're just rumor mongers. I presume that the Chronicle Herald checked uh, or you know got compelling facts in the first place it's not my story to defend but you're so right for for media to suddenly say they don't believe in scoops or leaks is a bit much but they prove it because imagine if some mom or dad's name were public now imagine the national venom that would be rained down on them and i'm not talking about by syrians i'm talking about by white liberal journalists outraged that the narrative was broken, the narrative of these sweet little innocent refugees. Oh, yeah, well, that the journalists are the most angry people here, and I can understand any mom. Oh, and by the way, this afternoon, the Halifax Regional School District put out a scorching press release. I mean, would you want to be a parent? Would you want to be a teacher reporting a case of violence, knowing that you'd be ripped to ribbons by the media and your own school board. No, you can understand why a source would want to be anonymous. Now, like I say, I don't know what the facts are, but the Halifax Chronicle Herald itself said four sources 
that's a lot more than most media used to run with anonymous tips all the time. We've got Faith Goldie from the Rebel.media on the ground trying to get to the bottom of this, trying to speak with, with players involved and, and do what most won't do, and that's to say, is it true? Now, the school board says it's not true. I saw that in uh, Metro Halifax. All right, fine. But as you say, four other people have come forward and said it is. It's not the first time I've had school board officials tell me something's not true when I have proof that it is. Well, yeah, and again, I don't know. I don't know who these four sources are. I do know this. Faith Goldie, who I trust, who's got a big heart, she hopped on a plane late last night with a cameraman, went down there, and, and she's got one instruction. Follow the truth wherever it leads. If these four sources were lying gossips, well, let's find that out. If these four people were telling the truth, let's find that out. If there's some blurry place in between, let's find that out. If there was a cover-up, let's find that out. If these Syrian kids are saintly kids who wouldn't you know, hurt a lamb, let's find that out. We, unlike the Halifax Chronicle Herald, are not going to be shy about the fact wherever they lead, and we are not going to be cowed into silence like all these fancy journalists from the media party are shrieking on Twitter and Facebook. So I trust Faith, and she has only one instruction, which is find the truth. We're not going with preconceptions. We know that this is a hot issue, so other people don't want to re- re- report on it. But Faith will say whatever she sees. I trust her. We, I think there's a, a couple of factors at play here. One, this involves Syrian refugees, specifically Muslim Syrian refugees. That's the allegation. And two, this is a, a newspaper that's in the middle of a labor strike. So the regular journalists are locked out. And so in the comments, you see, well, a scab wrote this. Uh, it's, you know, I, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> well, look, I mean, the strike is relevant two ways. First of all, maybe the replacement journalists aren't as experienced, aren't as good at checking, double-checking, triple-checking. Maybe, could be. What's odd is that we don't have a byline. We don't know what reporter wrote it. So maybe it was an excellent investigative report. I don't know. So on the one hand, could be that it was an inexperienced reporter. I don't know. But on the other hand, you can see, as you just point out, the malicious grudge that a lot of unionized media party poobahs have. Oh, what do you expect from a scab paper? So they're prejudging it for their own reasons. I don't care about the labor strike there. I don't have a dog in that fight. So, again, that's not coloring our reportage here. We're just going to, and Faith is out there, and uh, I'm not going to give away some of the interviews that she is setting up and going to do until we're ready to reveal them because I don't want other media party types to try and scare off the people we're talking to. But I think we're going to find some of the truth. But one truth we do know, already. And that's the media party hates anything that contradicts their narrative of Syrian refugees being anything but little lambs. Well, as you said at the start, kids will fight. And we know that that's going to happen. And so this this could be an absolutely true story, and it shouldn't be shocking. But we do know that if this had been the other way around, and it was um, kids from Halifax attacking refugee kids, we know that they would, without question, have backed this. The media party types would have backed the story and spread it around on their gossip machine known as Twitter without questioning. Oh, exactly. I mean, in fact, it happens so often, these cases of Islamophobia, 
and I've, I've done some shows, and I bet you have too, on false alarms, you know, boy crying wolf on Islamophobia that turns out to be hoaxes, sometimes even committed by Muslim activists themselves. I'm not saying all cases of anti-Muslim crime are hoaxes. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying I could point to a half dozen trauma cases thereof. There, there was again, one, it goes, there was go one in Calgary just a little while ago, a, um, a funeral at a Muslim cemetery, and shots rang out. It was bulletined across the country as if there were an Islamophobic attack, and it turns out, no, they were two warring factions of gangs trying to settle yeah. scores at a funeral. Both of which were Muslim. You're so mm-hmm. right. I'm, in Cal- Speaking of Calgary, there were so uh, a couple of, I think they were Somali Muslim gangsters who fired a gun right into a nightclub on closed circuit TV. And, you know, the fact that they were both named Mohammed, well, the media put a cone of silence over that immediately. You just point out the double standard here. When the alleged perpetrator is Muslim, the media go into silence mode. When the alleged victim is Muslim, the media go into megaphone mode. And I think that justice should be racially neutral, religiously neutral. And I think reporters should go for just the facts. I don't know what just the facts are in Halifax. That's why we send faith, because I simply don't trust the Halifax Chronicle Herald or the school board or the editors or the media part. I don't trust anyone out there on the issue of refugees. Everyone has an ax to grind. We're going to go and have the truth. And I, I can hardly wait to see what faith comes back with. All right. Let us know when that happens, Ezra. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Talk to you later. All right. Ezra Levant with me from the bunker earlier today. When we come back, your calls, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. You want to comment on the Halifax school story? You want to comment on the local school story with the graffiti, the budget and the fantasy numbers, the justice minister crying racism, all of that open for discussion after news at the top of the hour. I'm Brian Lilly, News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Five two one talk five two one eight two five five star five eighty on Bell Mobility. Feeling a little lonely. I'm not getting any emails. Feel neglected. It's beyond the news at cfra.com. Uh, yeah, send glowing reviews there in case my bosses read them. Just send how great I am. Brian's wonderful. Beyond the news at cfra.com. Uh, and if you want to join the conversation, 521-TALK, 521-8255-STAR-580 on Bell Mobility. The received wisdom from Canada's intelligentsia from the chattering classes is that Tom Mulcair was ousted because he wasn't left-wing enough. I deconstructed that earlier, but there's no question the NDP is divided. And Mulcair mentioned that in his concession speech, after which had to be a very tough Loss. When your party says 52% of your party members or delegates say, we don't want you around here much anymore, that's got to hurt. We will always be the party that dreams no small dreams. We'll always be that party. And you know what? I couldn't be prouder of each and every one of you and to count you as friends. Don't let this very divided vote divide us. Let's all work together now to choose the best person to take our project forward. Merci. 
Thank you. On continue. On continue. Except you won't, Tom, because you're out. What do you make of Tom Mulcair's ouster? What do you make of the justice minister playing the race card when questioned about why, as justice minister, she's going to a, a swanky fundraiser? I thought that was beneath her, and I'm really upset by that. When you play the race card, you are essentially calling out the person asking the question as having some kind of racial agenda. I, there was nothing in Jacques Gord's question, nothing in his demeanor, nothing in his tone of voice that would say that. And nobody has raised that except the minister. As Shakespeare said, I think the lady doth protest too much. What about you? What about the, the story out of Halifax? The school? The newspaper printing the story? The outrage on Twitter forcing the paper to take it down? And most of the commentary not even asking, is it true? You have thoughts on any of this? 521-TALK, 521-8255-STAR-580 on Bell Mobility. We'll go to Dave in Ottawa. You're on Beyond the News. First of all, before I get to my conversation, I just want to say, for all who may be listening, that you're doing a fantastic, wonderful job, and you ought to be commended for that. Uh, Thank you very much, Dave. Your (laughs) check's in the mail. We hope the right people are listening. (laughs) Your check is in the mail. I I wanted to comment on the minister, but I want to give a little bit of an analogy. That's true from a workplace I was in, where a certain gentleman uh, was making some people feel uncomfortable if not even outright moderately threatened uh, on, on a almost sexual matter. And any time a, a complaint was raised against him, he pulled the race card. Now, being in a union shop, that that's the last, the union doesn't want to handle that. That's just, we can't deal with that. Mm-hmm. So it was glossed over, papered over, you know, a few platitudes tossed around, and everybody went down their way. Until he at one time came in from lunch, having had a liquid lunch, and pull the same kind of a trick on a middle manager. And what happened the, then? The fit hit the shan, to say the <laughs> least. And uh, he was demoted. He wasn't fired as he should have been, but he was certainly demoted and put in a place where he didn't have to deal with supervising people anymore. And what the minister has done is just as bad. You see, she didn't defend herself. She deflected. Yeah. And in the worst, in the lowest kind of a way, how dare she accuse anybody of being racist when they're not? That's low and low. And if she's not brought to task for being at that darn meeting she attended, the fundraiser, she should very well be brought to task for what she did to defend herself. Because that was low. Well, like you say, it was deflection. It wasn't defending because she can't defend herself. I mean, the conservatives and the NDP both read out comments. I believe both parties did. Because there are liberals on the record attacking the conservatives, Bev Oda, Shelley Glover, others, for doing this same thing. And in Bev Oda's case, she went to a fundraiser. A bunch of people from the arts community showed up while she was heritage minister. She returned the money. She wouldn't take it. The same thing happened with Shelley Glover. They wouldn't take the money. This was, in, in and, and I believe in one of those cases, it was a broader-based fundraiser and then a bunch of people from the industry showed up this was at a law firm organized by lawyers for lawyers to come and schmooze with the justice minister and all she wants to say is well it's because we wanted to talk about diversity well no before that she said well i wasn't there as just you know i'm a member of parliament yeah from four thousand miles away yeah so you don't believe her no, I don't. She wasn't defending herself. She was deflecting. And like I said, in, in the lowest, meanest kind of a way. And for that, she should be brought to task. 
All right. Thanks for the call, Dave. Take care. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You have thoughts? You want to join the conversation? It's easy to do. 521-TALK, 521-8255-580 on Bell Mobility or 1-800-580-2372. And please email me. I'm getting lonely in here. Beyond the News at CFRA.com. Back after this. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. in my headphones as I air sing along with Adele. It's just a fantastic song. Although I don't think it's the best one on our latest album, but the CFRA Rocks Contest is on. We've already given away tickets to Garth Brooks. We've given away tickets to Peter Gabriel and Sting. And this week, not now, not now, but during the day starting at 7.35 tomorrow, you can qualify to win an amazing trip. You can qualify at 735, 835, 1135, and then 335 and 435, okay? But get this trip. You not only get a pair of tickets to see Adele in Toronto, you get two nights hotel at the Pantages Hotel in Toronto. This is an amazing, it's part of what used to be the Pantages Theater, right near uh, Dundas Square at Young and Dundas. An amazing place. I had a colleague that lived there for a little while. Um, I don't know how they afforded it, but, you know, it's what happens when people are young, single, and making too much money. So amazing hotel. You can even order a Kit Kat off their menu. And you travel from Ottawa to Toronto by via rail. So your next chance to win is with Bill Carroll on the morning rush tomorrow at 735. You do want to check that out because, I mean, type of thing you want to win. It is the type of event you want to go to. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Duncan in Ottawa, you're on about Tom Mulcair. Yes, I I feel for Tom Mulcair um, at a time like this. It's, it seems uh, um, I- extremist groups have uh, taken over the NDP and when extremist groups take over political parties, that's never a good sign. You know, Duncan, if this were the conservatives pushing out Stephen Harper for not being right-wing enough, and a lot of people would make that argument, uh, then we would be hearing about the far right. The far, it'd be in ominous tones you would hear about the far right creeping in. I'm not hearing about the far left all that much, you? No. Well, it's 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 it, 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 it's sad for all that I did for all that I disagreed with his politics. This is this is dirty pool, in my opinion. 
I, absolutely it is, and uh, and I think Tom's gotten a, a raw deal. Do you think – I mean, we don't know who's going to run for leader, but if this is the direction the party wants to go, do you think that the next election they will ever be leading in the polls for weeks on end? Uh, it's just it, it's just hard it's just hard to say that I, I mean I I the, I I don't the, the, this uh, um, the the uh, these people who who uh, the, the 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 advocate the the leap approach a leap mm-hmm. approach yeah uh, that sounds dangerous to me that 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 uh, that smacks of world government and if i were if i were i w- if i were uh, if i were old school ndp i would be fuming right now but you're not old school ndp no i i'm i'm not although um uh, <laughs> there are a few um the the um the the ndp um politicians that i had respect for um I can't remember their names. Well, you, know, you know, there's a lot of conservatives that would rather, uh, if they couldn't vote conservative, would rather go for the NDP than the liberals and vice versa. Because at least it's a party that normally stands for something, but now they're standing for the wrong thing. Well, I mean, the, 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 uh, again, the, the, liberals have, the liberals have stolen the best of the NDP platform. So the NDP No, they've stolen nothing. the worst of it. They've stolen the worst of it and become full board socialists. The the, the liberals, you heard me with Daryl Bricker earlier. The, mm-hmm. These liberals are the, the interventionist liberals. These are not the Jean Chrétien liberals. And if you thought they were bad, well, this lot's worse. Duncan, thanks for the call. Thank you. All right, let's go. Uh, 521 Talk. You want to join the conversation? 521 Talk, 521 8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. I'm not sure if I'll uh, regret this later, but George and Arne Pryor, you're on the program. You won't regret this one. I, I won't? No. Okay. What's See, your conspiracy theory for leap, me no, now? No, no. leap, I consider it's a leap over the cliff. Okay. <laughs> but this is true. Yeah, because they didn't get an historian. They should have got themselves an historian who knows what he's talking about, or she, because uh, the leap thing is obviously parts of it, but in every other country has failed. Uh, they should have studied history. And in history, there's two errors, one in the British Empire— and one in the Roman Empire. I'm sure there were more than two. Oh, but... No, I'll tell you who I'm talking about. Where the economies actually did well because they understood credit, debt, and money. It had nothing to do with whether they had oil coming in or, or trade or anything. They just understood how one was when they had the sticks uh, to manage uh, debt and stuff. And in the Roman Empire, they had a certain coinage to manage the uh, economic system. When the bankers got in, they destroyed it all. So what happens is, is, is these people, their system won't work. It'll just self-destruct on itself. Okay. Because they didn't go. So, what, what do you think they're going to do now? Well, they have to go back and find study how money and debt and uh, are, are managed properly, and what, which empires managed properly, and see why they succeeded where we failed. If you study the Roman Empire, and in the end, of the Roman Empire, they actually were going solar. You know, if you study the building structures in the Roman Empire, so they, they went under. Hmm. You know, you ever studied the Roman Empire? Uh, not in a while, but yeah. So the structures near the end there, they had solar buildings and everything, and they, they went under. And their, their technology was getting more and more, but they went under uh, because the hordes destroyed them. Still parts of the uh, Europe using the aqueducts they built, and the yeah. roads may have been repaved a few times, but the roads set up are So what are do you there. think of that leap? A leap over the cliff? I think it's a leap over the cliff, and uh, yep. but as I, as I pointed out last week, 
an awful lot of what's in the leap has already been endorsed by the liberals, including leaving oil in the ground, shutting down pipelines, all of this. Well, you, well, they, they can say all these things now if the world's coming to an end. doesn't matter what they yeah, say. Yeah, I don't think the world's coming to an end. Uh, we so, know not the, the time nor the hour. Yeah, but they can say, say anything they want now. It's coming to an end. Thanks a lot for the call, George. <laughs> all right. All right, let's go to Peter. Peter in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Hi, good evening, Brian. Yeah, I'm not surprised what happened in, in Edmonton. I'm quite, I'm very astonished that Mr. Mulcair allowed himself to be put through such a humiliation. Um, I don't assume. I don't. You know, I don't think he needs a job that badly. Um, well, he, he was up for a leadership review, regardless. Parties all have this baked into their systems. It's right. just often they. Uh, you know, the, the the leader sails through it. And, and yeah. I think some parties, the liberals, I think it used to be every two years. But if you're doing well, you just sail through it. Yeah, but, you know, I, I think Mr. Moteri, he's, first of all, the, the federal party, um, I've always thought it to be sort of a lost, a lost soul looking for a cause and sort of a fringe group. And it just seems like now it's... Um, uh, it's being hollowed out, and it's being shown for its intellectual bankruptcy. I don't think it stands for for anything. Any, well, it, anything. It, it stands for the wrong things, uh, Peter. I mean, yeah. you, you've got – Avi Lewis is a proponent of South American socialism. He right. thinks yeah. Hugo Chavez didn't go far enough in Venezuela. This is crazy. He wants – Absolutely. He, he yeah. wants to, uh, to see uh, workers take over the factories. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that and, hasn't worked out very well in in the places that uh, that they've tried it. Yeah, no, this is is completely ridiculous, and it it doesn't it doesn't bode well for uh, for, for for foreign companies and, and governments looking to to Canada to invest, and they, they must be shaking their heads. We can't even decide. Well, apparently now in the National Post is an article that said that Justin Trudeau has finally made up his mind and given the, the green light to uh, to produce the uh, the pipeline to the west coast. But I mean, this is this is, looks like amateur hour, and um, I really hope that Justin Trudeau gets his act together because uh, you know the world doesn't wait for for, for slow pokes, really. I haven't seen that article in the uh, in the National Post. Is this John Iveson's latest? I think it was, but it was in, it was in late afternoon edition today, the, and the, apparently uh, the Trans yeah, Mountain so, expansion into BC. But yeah. they still have to go through the the same process that were there before. So um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's all a it's all a bit of a charade. It was it was a big ruse, I think, uh, to to sweep up and destroy the NDP in, in the last federal election. It was it was a big vote spinner, and uh, the same way with the uh, legalization of marijuana is, is a big uh, smoke and mirrors game to suck in the younger younger voters. Um, but I think Mr. Trudeau has got to get his act together uh, very quick. Thanks for the call, Peter. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You want to join the conversation? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. So I'm looking out across the street, and once again, it's late at night, and there are people exercising. 
They all look so fit. Maybe because they exercise at 930 at night. How committed do you have to be? Honestly, there, there's one guy beating up on, I don't know, some kind of punching bag. I can't see it. I just see him doing punches and kicks and jumping around. And, and there's a woman on an elliptical machine, somebody, I don't know what, on a bike. But every time I look over there, they all look really fit. Hmm. Like I said, maybe because they work out at 930 at night and I don't. Get to your calls in just a minute. If you want to join the conversation, it's 521-TALK, 521-8255-STAR-580. I'm Bell Mobility. But I do have to ask, did you know that today is National Pet Day and yesterday was National Sibling Day? Here's something you wouldn't know. Tomorrow, National Big Win Day. I, these things show up on social media, and I don't know who starts them. So I tried to look it up. And I found a website called NationalCalendarDay.com. In addition to being National Pet Day, today is also National Barbershop Quartet Day, National Cheese Fondue Day, National 8-Track Tape Day, National Submarine Day. Tomorrow is National Big Wind Day, National Grilled Cheese Sandwich Day, National Licorice Day, National Equal Pay Day, National Library Workers Day. Some of these are actual days proclaimed by different governments, normally in the United States. That's where these things have happened. Uh, but, you know, some of them, I think, are just made up. Earlier this week, April 9th was, oh, and I've lost my internet connection. April 9th was National Winston Churchill Day. I didn't know about these things until social media. Actually, I may have learned about some of them when I started working on Parliament Hill full-time because governments will actually put things out like this. Today is National Blueberry Growers Day, and we, the government of Canada, uh, salute the fine work done by blueberry growers across the country. We honestly get news releases like that. 521-TALK, 521-8255-STAR-580 on Bell Mobility. Uh, tell me if you're excited about National Ham Spiral Day, or no, sorry, National Spiral Ham Day. That's coming up later this week. Let's go to Frank in Greeley. Frank. How you doing, Brian? Jesus, I'm doing well. the first time I've ever spoken with you. I think it might be. Jesus, but you're from the, nice the, fine, talk to you. the fine parts of Greeley. Right on. Okay. You know, it's great to see uh, some of the ladies now, uh, women, mm-hmm. getting into politics. No, uh, well, for a little while, more than half the premiers uh, in the country were women. Of course, uh, bilingualism is an asset. You know how it works in Canada, like liberalism. Mm-hmm. You ha- must have at least uh, two, you know, French-English. We know this. Now, like, uh, okay, Mulcair maybe is a little older now. now yeah, I mean, maybe... you know, th- that question yes. was being asked. In the foyer mm-hmm. of the House of Commons today, Mulcair was not there. But as NDP okay. members came out, people were saying, is it time for generational change? Do you need a younger leader? That's what journalists were asking at New Democrat MPs. Yeah, like whether it be like in the U.S., like uh, Hillary Clinton. She's 70 years, 69 years old. That's not generational yeah, change. Yeah, a little old. Eh? What do you think, Brian? Mm. <laughs> Getting a little old there, you figure. She'll be older than Ronald Reagan, I believe, <laughs> if she's elected. No, I, I'm serious. Yes, no, 
you know, there's a lot of young ladies that potential. Like, uh, okay, let's say if you have uh, Ambrose, there's a possibility or not, Lee. You know, some uh, younger women they can uh, take it on. You know, Lord knows it. Right? You, you think they'll? You think Ambrose will make a good well, conservative as long leader? As he can speak French. You know, yeah, she speaks French, so. Yeah, uh, come see, come see. Come see, a come see. Yeah. Come see, come see. Well, it's nice. Mo- girls more, get mo- in there. more than on petite poo. Can see poo. Have a good night. You too. All right, man. All right, let's go to uh, Gary in Ottawa Center. You're calling in about the Elgin Street Public School? Yes, but I've got another subject. When you said the big win, yep. it reminded me what a friend of mine told me last week. There's a new uh, blues group coming to town. Mm-hmm. Trudy and the Win Trot Suckers. <laughs> Man. No, you didn't laugh. <laughs> What happened to you? I, I guffawed. I guffawed. Okay. I did not Street laugh. School. I guffawed. Elgin Street School. I might as well get onto something. Bake your wake. Wake your bake. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Elgin Street School. Yes. I've been looking for a place to set up as a museum for the wounded warriors. I've done every building in this town. I've got my eye on a lot of people and buildings. Right across Kitty Corner from the school is 301 Elgin, a three-story building that edges on the park, right? All right. Okay. You'll never guess what's happening. What? 154 refugees are ready to move in, or some of them have moved in and they've pulled the shades. They've all got large TVs and fully furnished and I see uh, selfies going off in there like crazy. Uh, I, I I would need to see, and I'm as skeptical of this refugee push as anybody, Gary. If you follow me, you know that. I, uh, well, I don't know how many we've got in town, but there's quite a few. But I, I would be shocked to find out that uh, there's a, a a building full of refugees and big screen TVs. Now, if that happens well, to be I'm a whole... Well, I'm telling you, if, I'm on, not hold lying on. to you, Brian. If Listen, it, if it happens, one of the buildings. I was watching. If it happens to be a hotel, that's where they've been putting them up. If the hotel already has no, big screen no, TVs, then the they hotel. have them. That was where Planned Parenthood was. Okay. Last, well, the year, you well, last year. Anyway, okay, I'll let you fool around with that a bit, and then I'll fill you in later if you want me to. Okay. President of the CDC in the States mm-hmm. is also the president of Merrick, head of the vaccinations. And he's winning because it used to be one in 400 that had autism. Now it's one in 27. And in you, you you happen to think that uh, Big Pharma is infecting people with autism? Absolutely. As, as, as a result of some of it. I... <laughs> now, don't, don't get... tell me that I'm not. I, I'm just quoting your station. It was on a couple, a couple of nights ago. Gary? Yes. I can't believe it. Don't go away on me. Just hold on. Oh, okay. Give okay. me, give me, give me some proof where I'm hanging up. Well, uh, about what? Give what me some proof about this. First off, the head of the Centers for Disease Control would never also be the head of Merck Pharmaceutical. Oh, well, this that's was, uh, not. This was that your is not. That your is not true. Last night. 
That, well, I can, on, on Coast to Coast. I, I can't account for anything okay. that happens on okay, any other show, you, Coast to Coast, or anything you, else. Here's one you can check out right now, okay? It's called Illuminati, Illuminati Wife Tells All in four parts. Just type it in your your interview. All right. I'll do that on the commercial break. And you will, you will it, not believe it. It Get, mentions George Soros and uh, Henry Kissinger and all those guys. Not, not a big fan of Spooky Dude. All right, thanks for the call. It's not, it's, it's... No, spooky dude is what I call George Soros. I'm Brian Lilly. Uh, this is Beyond the News. You're on the line. We'll get to you before the end of the show. Don't go away. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Back after this. On the news with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. So, are you uh, celebrating National Cheese Fondue Day or are you celebrating National Eight Track Tape Day? Given that I'm lactose intolerant, I might celebrate National Eight Track Tape Day a bit more. Five two one talk five two one eight two five five star five eighty on Bell Mobility. Uh, somebody emailed me. I don't see their name because of the way their email showed up, but they, they're they guessing that I um, that I grew up on the mountain in Hamilton. Don't know how. Looks like they're an East Ender. Guy, the Capital Voice, you're on Beyond the News. Oh, my God, that last segment. George from Arm Pryor, Frank from Greeley, and Dave from downtown. You should call that the tinfoil hat trifecta there. I, uh, I once had a tinfoil hat, made it uh, and wore it on air proudly. I have mine at, I have mine at the camper. Yeah, most definitely. Um, Brian, just open up two things so I don't forget, because I've been on hold for 45 minutes. You must have one popular show. It is not 45. Yeah, 45 minutes, just to let you know. So, you know, something that was talked about two hours ago, I'm kind of having my thoughts are kind of, you know, uh, in Frankland. Uh, but anyways, uh, I wanted just to go over two things. The Ray Bold comment today mm-hmm. that you played was the first time that I had heard that in the media today. And as you know, I... Run a, I, I'd like to monitor the media. Thank you very much for schlepping your tripod and camera up to Parliament Hill. Thank you for standing there for an hour while people wait in a scrum while you maybe or maybe not get their question out. And thank you for asking a question that nobody else will ask. Do you need to get the ice cream truck guy? response from that stupid woman who I don't even know. No, I, 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 I don't want to... Uh, thank you, Brian. I, I don't want to call... Uh, 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 Jody Lane, Wilson maybe? Raybould. Would you call her Pure Lane? Uh, are you talking about the justice minister? Uh, n- well, I'm not, I'm t- I want to talk about Raybould. No, but the CRA minister when you asked oh. about Morneau Chappelle. Yeah, yeah, that one was was. I, I didn't get what, the what minister to answer because she asked that question to get up there. What yeah, was your total time spent? It was about an hour and a half to get yeah, that I, question. I watch in. how you and A can work. You go through a lot of stuff to get up there and ask, and and maybe not. Ask she doesn't speak any English, so it was uh, Francois Philippe uh, Champagne. I see. I see. Well, you know, I just want to thank you for that. When will I see that on the National tonight on CBC? <laughs> anyway, All right, let's get David on to Ray Aiken, Bold. David Aiken, yeah. little, uh, on Ray Bold. Shame on her, you're right. She better come out and apologize to Aboriginal people tomorrow. Forget about all adver- uh, apologizing to everybody else. What? So now it's, now it's, now it's it, because you're an Aboriginal person, you, you get a, a free pass? The fact that her husband, Represents and is partner in a law firm in Ontario. 
that sponsors a dinner for her from a constituency standpoint that she uses that failed gaffe on is just you, she really does. Well, her husband's stupid. a lobbyist. So a lobbyist. But, it's... Brian, this is exactly what Wynn's doing. Tell me how this is different from what Wynn is doing. It's not at all. Okay. And Wynn's thinking of reconsidering it, and Ray Bull has, this, has the audacity to stand up in the House of Commons and use the race card of being an Aboriginal? If, they had, if the Liberals had followed their own protocol from when the Conservatives were in power, Guy, they would have cancelled this last week, but they didn't. Well, They're Brian, too arrogant for it, that. It might be coming to a head, Brian, but I really don't think so. I think Wynn's going to suck and blow till September. She's going to prorogue. Nothing's going to get done with regards to campaign financing. Jimmy municipally wants his corporate union donations, so nothing's going to change, Brian. This is all just lip service because they got caught, and they're going to basically wait till the next boondoggle distracts the sheep of Ontario before they go on about their business and keep raising funds the way they have been since the Roman times. <laughs> Well, if you listen to Andrea Horvath on the sh- uh, on this station earlier today, uh, it's going through fast and quick, and she's not happy about it. Guy, got to get other, to Brian. I got one other thing to mention. Very quick. I was on the dark web today. Mm-hmm. I looked at some of the uh, Fonseca documents. GNS Global Consulting recipient, Korean Electric Corporation. Guess who? Guess who? GNS Consulting is no idea. George Smitherman. All right. Breaks Thursday. We'll uh, we'll check in with that later. Got to get got to get to other calls. All right, let's go to Gordon in Ottawa. Gordon, go. Hi, Brian. Hello. You're calling in about the hate crime. You say it's an overreaction. Well, I think to call juvenile delinquents writing a couple of things on a school wall a hate crime is a bit of a stretch. I also don't know how it's racist to say ISIS go home or anything like that because I bombers. I, 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 people think that ISIS is not a race. Islam is not a race. You can, you can, if they had anti-Muslim comments, and and there were some, uh, then that's bigoted. But Islam's not a race, right? I think, I think they overreact, uh, especially when there's uh, atrocities, Islamic atrocities, going on in the world. You see a lot of this. Like you remember when the six Canadians died in Burkina Faso? Mm-hmm. Um, sunny ways. Uh, you know, uh, I'm still upset about his reaction to that, which was very little. And he goes to that bombed-out uh, mosque in Peterborough. The one so he doesn't have to. The, the, the one where they they preached um, uh, a different treatment for women. Yes. Mm-hmm. He goes there so he doesn't have to use the term Islamic and terrorism in the same sentence because it would be in poor taste, right at a mosque. But, I mean, there's this double standard going on, Ab- and every time, absolutely, every time some atrocity happens in the world, and then they they parade out this stuff is like it's more important than the uh, atrocities committed in the name of their religion. And it, it, we've had this, you know, it's been mega magnified since September 11th, 2001. But it's almost systematic how they do that. And also, that that, that uh, mosque in Peterborough, mm-hmm. I find it very difficult to believe that in a town that size, they don't know who did that. Well, and that was right on the heels of uh, uh, the the Paris. There, uh, there, if you talk to police, there's a difference between knowing who did something and proving who did something. Yeah, I think they and, know exactly and, who did that. Well, like many of the shootings that happened in town, police know who did them. Being able to prove who did them 
is another story. Gordon, I got a few more calls I got to get to before the end of the show. Thanks for yours tonight. Cheerio. All right, let's go to John in the P or John in Ottawa. Hi, Brian. Hi. I, I'm a bit uh, confused that you're upset with the uh, NDP's possibility of adopting this leap manifesto. I mean, Tom <laughs> Mulcair pushed the NDP from the left, and and the left pushed him out. Rachel's muddying the waters on policy and and uh, not really showing people pictures of of her members holding up anti-oil signs anymore. I think that's a great opportunity for the NDP to tell Canadians exactly who they are. And don't you think they can run on those merits in the next general election? Well, I think they will be running on those merits in the next general election. And believe me, they will be uh, the NDP. They continue to push this. And uh, or in Alberta, they continue to try and say, here's what the real NDP is. And by the way, it's the rebel that's doing much of that. Uh, the rebel dot media is the official opposition in Alberta right now, it seems, because the media is in love with Rachel Notley in that province. And the opposition parties are, are so divided. It, Brian Jean at the, the Wild Rose is doing a not bad job, but uh, the fact is the rest of them are are kind of lost. Well, I think Brian Lilly should be the first to endorse Mr. Lewis for leader of the federal <laughs> NDP party. Hey, look, I, I'm not saying I wouldn't, and I wouldn't, I'm not saying I wouldn't cheer. What has me upset, John, yes. is that the other media keep saying, this is because Tom Mulcair pulled them to the center, and that's why they lost. No. The only reason they came close to winning. I just want the truth told. That's right. And, and the, if you heard me on the Leap Manifesto last week, the truth is it's nuttier than a bag of cashews. But the it is still remains a fact that Tom Mulcair did not lose the election because he was too moderate. It, at what point did Canadians wake up and say, oh, gee, Marge, I was going to vote for that Mulcair guy, but he's not socialist enough for me. That never happened. That conversation did not happen. But the media, the media keep repeating it over and over again because it fits the, the received wisdom handed down from some columnist somewhere, and they all must believe it. And if you don't think that's how the, the press gallery and the press pack works, I got news for you. All right, John, thanks for the call. No problem. Have a great night, Brian. All right. Uh, watching uh, camera to my right, scenes of the uh, the next NDP debacle that's coming up, and that is Manitoba's election. That happens next week. Next Tuesday, people in Manitoba go to the polls. The Liberals in Manitoba, by the way, just declared Louis Riel the first premier of the province. Yep, that's right. They declared Louis Riel to be the original premier. He was never elected premier, and he ran two rebellions and was a raving lunatic who had a messianic complex. But don't worry, he's a national hero, at least to some, on the progressive left. But next week, the NDP is likely to go down in flames. Hopefully that continues to happen, and then we move province by province across the country and take back the provincial legislatures. This is something that they talk about in, in the United States. They talk about taking back the state houses. We need to start thinking like that. We need to start moving across the country as a movement and saying, let's restore sanity. That's a big part of what I'm about here. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You want to email me? Beyond the News at CFRA.com. Facebook, Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Go there, share the stories. 
I don't get a billion bucks from the government like those other guys. Help me out here. Show me some Facebook lovin'. Back tomorrow. News Talk 580 CFRA.